Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Folda. I'm the podcast host and a professor. And every week we come to you with a new episode about biotechnology and its applications. And lately we've been diving into COVID-19. But today's guest is one I've wanted to have on for a very, very long time. He was the director of millennial engagement for the Monsanto company for years. He runs a very popular podcast. He's extremely active out on the science communication circuit in helping agricultural professionals become more proficient with their communication skills. He's a guy who I've known for a long time and uh, learned something from him every time I walk away from the table or hang up the phone. So we're talking to Vance Crow. Uh, Vance, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Kevin. Thanks. Yeah, this is really fun. I'm I'm very flattered to have you on here because I've it's I'm talking to someone who I really appreciate in many ways as a communicator and as someone who a thinker, but also someone who is a friend and someone who I really uh, count on a lot. And I'd really like to give people an idea of two things today. One is you know what your time was like at Monsanto and you know if they showed you the dungeon and that stuff. And then two. Um, What's the state of communication and agriculture today? So we'll, we'll talk about those two subjects. So your, your background is really interesting. And so before you ended up at the Monsanto company, it was kind of an interesting circuitous path. How did you get there? You know, I was never a great student. I, I did okay in school. I was smart enough to be able to get straight B's if I didn't apply myself at all. And if there was some class that I had to get an A in because my dad required me to, then I could do that. But I really just didn't have the detail orientation that takes to be really good at school. So I went away to college not knowing what I wanted to be, but knowing I wanted to do something with communications. And I, people kept telling me, well, you should go into public relations. You like people. And so I did. I, and I got all the way through to the end of my classes and I did an internship. And that was my first taste of what it was going to be like to be in a corporate professional PR communicators role. And without going into all the details of it, I realized this is the opposite of everything that I want to do. I am very interested in finding out what is the core deep truth in something, even if it looks ugly or it makes people uncomfortable. And PR is not about that. PR is about putting your best face forward and trying to explain things so that the other side always agrees with you. So I was all the way done with school and realized I had made a terrible mistake. So I got some really good advice from a friend who asked me, what is it that you want to do? I said, I want to travel. And that friend said, well, if you want to travel, then the thing that you should do is find a job where traveling is a part of the job. And I knew nobody was going to pay me to head up their Singapore office. So I did what, what seemed obvious to me at the time. I became a deckhand on an ecotourism ship. And from there, my, my life took all sorts of different paths. I, 
I was traveling up uh, in the Western Hemisphere down in Latin America and through the Panama Canal. Then I met a good friend and we went into business together. We bought a house and renovated it and sold it. I joined the U.S. Peace Corps and went to Africa. And every time I'm going to these new places, I'm discovering that I don't have the skills necessary to be good at this. And so I just started picking up skills and most of them were around building relationships. So when I ultimately moved to Northern California with a couple of my friends to renovate a ship, I I learned how to do radio. And then I decided I wanted to go to graduate school. So I went out to New York City and, and studied diplomacy. And then I got a job at the World Bank. So I was kind of bouncing all around. And none of this really makes any sense to anybody, least of all me, because all I was doing was saying, where is the next adventure that I can go on? And uh, eventually that led me to meeting my wife in Washington, D.C., both of us deciding that we didn't like the corporate world and uh, that we were going to move to St. Louis so my wife could study physical therapy at one of the best physical therapy programs in the country at WashU. And I launched my own communications company. And I'd been doing that for about two years when Monsanto came to me and said, hey, would you like to interview for this job? director of millennial engagement. And I thought this was the funniest thing I had ever seen because I knew that Monsanto was the evil empire. So I accepted the invitation to go interview for this job because I thought, well, if you get a tour of North Korea, you get to write a blog post about it and everybody will think it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I did this interview and I'm getting all the way through it and I'm starting to realize, wait a second, these people don't think that they're evil. They think that what they're doing is really valuable and really important, and they feel really misunderstood. And whoever gets this job is going to get to run around and test both the assumptions that they have coming in, but also the assumptions of the people that are in this place. And so I went from thinking this job interview was a joke to being like, this is the most important thing that has ever crossed my path. And I want this job because If they're as evil as everybody says they are, then I want to reveal this. I want to discover it and write a great tell-all book. But if they're not as evil as everybody thinks they are, well, then you've just discovered maybe the most important communications problem in the history of time, which is we're growing food more bountifully than we ever have before, and yet people are afraid and angry about how their food is produced. Now, that's a really great point. And it really is kind of the ultimate Rubik's Cube, because when you look at the hate for that company's name. And I don't know that anybody really even knows what the company does when they say they hate them. Uh, having to, to be the person who is going to help shape their communications effort has to be a tremendous um, challenge to, for, for someone to take on. And so when you were hired there, what was the gap that they identified that they said, we need to fill with somebody like Vance. Like what, what, what did they see you doing? I think that Monsanto, the thing that people have misunderstood about them is that they were truly an innovative company way beyond what most fortune 500 companies are. They were always looking for like, let's do the ordinary path. And then let's put a few people on the different path on the innovation thing where we don't require them to follow the regular rules that we have other people doing that we, we don't ask them to deliver results in the same way. And I was a part of before Monsanto ended 
them saying, we're going to do all these standard communications things as we try and reorganize our image and as we try and push back on the misinformation. Because I think after about 10 years of being the most hated corporation in the world, they started to figure out, wait a second, if we don't solve this communications problem about who we think we are versus what the public thinks we are, we're not going to be allowed to do business. So they had all the standard communications people, and then they built a little ragtag group of people that were supposed to do unorthodox things. So as weird as my title was, Director of Millennial Engagement, really we took that to mean we name generations because a new way of thinking is entering society. So how can we, just like a wave comes towards a shore, it's not going to be everything. It's not going to completely change the shape of the shore, but how can we get on and ride some of those waves? And my job was to figure out how can we get to unorthodox places? How can we have conversations that people don't expect and use a path that's different than the ordinary communications methods? And I think that they were probably three to four years ahead of the, the entire rest of the world as far as how to use social media and how to think about these things because they had to be. Well, what's really interesting about this, you know, you talked about your background in communications and PR and being a deckhand on a boat and Peace Corps, but nowhere along that line did you talk about agriculture or biotechnology and the things that really are the cornerstones of what Monsanto does. So how hard was it for you to get up to speed with the technology and how did they immerse you in that? You know, I came from uh, an, a small town in ag land, right? I grew up in small town, central Illinois. So the people involved in agriculture is a culture that I understand the pace, the way they think about things. So once I was given the purview that it is my job to learn as much as I possibly can, the farmers themselves were already a part of my kind of way of interacting with the world. The much more difficult thing was actually learning how to work closely with scientists who have spent most of their lives learning how to pay attention to these details, learning how to not say anything beyond what you know to be true, what you can prove with evidence, and trying to bridge the gap between focusing on the details that makes you correct but being abstract enough that other people can approach the idea that you're bringing and that they can help you understand it. And I, I would give 95% of the credit of my education to the fact that I found older scientists that, that wanted to mentor me. They saw it as a chance to have somebody go out and talk about their science. And they were willing to sit there with a guy that had never taken organic chemistry and explain to me how chemical bonds work and explain to me how biology works and a willingness to listen, to hear me doing things, and then correct me over and over and over again. So I, I actually attribute almost all of my ability to learn to me being curious and fundamentally ready to speak to the farmers, but more than anything, being around scientists that, that were willing to endure how painful it must have been to teach a 28-year-old guy how to do science that he should have learned back in high school. So the director of millennial engagement is kind of an amorphous title. What was your day-to-day -day work? I mean, was it writing for those audiences or speaking to those audiences? How did you engage? I didn't have any measures of my success. I didn't have any uh, writing obligations that I had to do. One of the crazy things about the way that they had set up this position was when I came in, 
they said, hey, you know, we're a corporation. When we sp- slotted for this position, and there were a couple of other positions around mine, a, a woman named Janice Person was brought in, another woman named Valerie Bays. But to my group, they said, here you go, here's your budget. And the budget was way bigger than any other budget I had ever touched before that point. And they said, now you can use this money to choose which conferences you think we should show up at, where should we have an informational booth, how should we think about this? And I went to a few things, just kind of putting my toe in the water, and I realized, wait a second, for every dollar that we spend doing sponsorship, what we're actually figuring out is what is the market rate for how much people don't want to hear what we have to say. And and like this is not going to be a way to start a brush fire. So instead, what I did was I said, here, take this entire budget and you guys just take it back. I don't want it anymore. Burn the ships. Because if the world views you as North Korea, you don't have to pay to get on stages. You just have to offer, I'll answer any question you have. And then everybody's like, oh, here, come here, sit down. I've got a, I've got a chair for you on this stage. And as soon as we made that kind of um, ideological switch that we weren't going to be spending money. And now it was a question of how can I meet people that are going to be interested in asking me questions and giving me access to the audience that they have to be able to at, at least start a conversation, find out what they're concerned about, explain it as well as I know. And once we started that, it it started to roll down a hill at a scale and scope that no one ever imagined possible. Well, during all of this interaction, which I agree, you know, took on a life of its own. I, I got to see you talk maybe, I don't even know, maybe that was uh, maybe March of 2016 or so or 2015. Um, and, you know, and it was fantastic. And it was right when you were beginning with them. And uh, how much of what you talked about was something that was shaped by the company or were you just working from a script that they would give you or were you really off, off the leash to just do what you thought would be the best way to solve their problem? <laughs> So the first time that I ever went to speak, I went to Iowa State University. And uh, I was, just as I was walking in, our mutual friend, Rob Long, I was talking with him on the phone. And he basically was like, if you can't win over the crowd at Iowa State, you should quit your job because that's, that's the home team. And uh, I walk into this uh, like stadium style room and I was like, this doesn't look like the ag college that I was expecting because I had been invited to a class on sustainability from the ag college. And I go to give this presentation that the company has probably spent several thousands of dollars to have a PR company make them have shiny graphs and and use phrases that they had uh, tested with the market and that they knew was going to be good. And I did these clips and I I was so excited about presenting that I had a two hour lecture and I did the lecture in 20 minutes because I was like, hey, we all agree with this. You know, GMOs are great and pesticides are needed, right? Because everybody from Iowa is going to agree with me. But I get done giving this presentation and I said, are there any questions? Imagining that I'm now going to have an hour and 40 minutes of answering questions and everybody agreeing with me. And this woman raised her hand straight up in the back row. And I said, yes, you there. Do you have a question? And she pointed straight at me and she goes, I don't believe a word out of your mouth. And the whole room erupted with clapping and laughter. And I was like, oh, crap, I did not expect this. And so I end up getting out of this situation. That's a whole nother fun story. But I left there being like, why did the high polish make these people think that I was their enemy as opposed to somebody that showed up? to answer the questions that they have. And I started to realize 
people don't know what they should think about this, the first time they're ever encountering somebody from Monsanto, or maybe the first time they've ever encountered somebody that spoke well of genetically engineered crops, what they don't want is to feel like somebody is tricking them. And I came to realize that the high polish, really clean things that you could do with graphic design were actually a turnoff. They were all the signals that people had received over the years that like, I should be suspicious of this message. So essentially I started writing my own slides and Monsanto was very good to me. They, they basically said, as long as you don't have words on your slide, then there's nothing for our lawyers to be worried about you putting out or having it show up in some court case somewhere. And so what I did was I made my presentation almost entirely visual. And then whatever I said was whatever I said in that moment. Nobody could really test it or push back on it. And the company, I think, kind of turned a blind eye to it because I started getting invited to a lot of places because I think people kind of intuitively understood, hey, this guy is not giving us the standard PR. He's trying to communicate what he has learned in as, in as well as he can. And I was always the first one to be like, I don't know the answer to that question. I can probably find it for you, but I don't know the answer. And and I think the fact that I wasn't a scientist made some of that easier for me to do than it would have been for somebody else. Oh, what you're talking about is authenticity. You know, people, when you try to play the role of, uh, you know, director of millennial engagement, who's going to go, you know, show the company's slides, I think that shows versus, you know, you being who you are, who is an approachable guy who wants to share the information he knows. And I think that that's what really wins with, with people. And I, I've experienced the same thing over time. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I remember the first time we ever met and I had heard about Kevin Folta for probably, I don't know, nine months to a year. And so to actually meet you in person was like meeting what, what would be akin to meeting a, like a big celebrity and the fact that you were just a regular person and you wanted to go grab a beer and we walked out to talk and we could just um, exchange ideas without worrying about being right or being cool or being, you know, thought of as somebody important. When I watched you do that, it transformed something in me because I was like, I want to have the same level of impact on people. I had watched you give a talk a few hours earlier that just washed over people and I, I was like, how does this work? And I realized it's because this person standing in front of me isn't trying to be right. He's not trying to be smarter than anybody else. He's not even trying to like win people over. He's sharing what he knows. And, and I think that meeting you was a very important part of my transformation on being authentic because the challenge of being authentic, it's easy enough to say, oh, you should be authentic. But the challenge is in order to do it, you have to expose parts of yourself. You have to make parts of what you don't know open for people to uh, take shots at or decide that they don't like. And it, it takes a certain mentality shift and a certain level of, I don't want to call it bravery as much as, as uh, a certain level of comfort that there may be people out there that don't like your authentic self. But once you get to that place, you never go back because it's so much more comfortable for you when you're speaking from a place of authenticity. No, you're exactly right. It, there's something that there's a there's a place that in your career as a scientist, when you realize, and maybe it's what the PhD degree is, attempts to do, where you realize you don't know everything. You know enough to know that you don't know, <laughs> and from that, the ability to say I have no idea, 
or just to share the information you have in the most clear way possible, because you're not trying to impress people with the information. You're trying to help them understand it. And I think that that, that shift is a really important one for people to go through. And, it, and it's difficult. I think it's actually the, the criticism that I have for science Twitter is that there is, there's something very tribal about putting ideas out that came from a scientific paper or came from what our understanding of the data, when people put it out and they defend it as though making sure that people agree with it is some part of their personality. So if somebody shoots at that idea on Twitter, they have a, a sort of um, kickback that makes them seem separate. It makes them seem like I'm a scientist that is behind some kind of ivory wall and I, I think that that authenticity is often lost on Twitter. I, I see a lot of, of challenges, particularly even now around coronavirus, where because people are so intent on defending um, the science, they oftentimes aren't open to um, hearing why people don't understand what, what they're saying. Yeah, but that's been our problem all along, right? I mean, that was Monsanto's problem back in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. It's, you know, here's the be all end all answer and, uh, and they're not, not listening. And really what the job of scientists should be, especially at the public interface is to very intently listen to understand the gaps in knowledge that we need to address because that information is completely useless if we're not, uh, developing that rapport and that conduit to be able to, 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 uh, discuss it effectively. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest challenges is we're all human, right? We all go out and try and decide what is true. And science is so helpful at helping us distill out all the noise and figuring out what is actually true. But then you move from what is true to what ought we to do now that we know this truth. And there is where a giant bridge has to be uh, created between what the public says, okay, we agree that is true, but what we should do now that we agree that that's true becomes political, religious, cultural. It becomes all these other things that, that it's never going to be easy to met out. Well, what were your biggest successes as the director of millennial engagement? I had some chances to, to do some collaborations with people that succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. So for example, I worked with my colleague Janice Person and we did a science Reddit AMA. And uh, for anybody that doesn't know, AMA is Ask Me Anything. And we brought in Dr. Fred Perlack, who was one of the scientists that led the team to creating BT Cotton. And we said, well, why don't we have Fred do, do this? Because he's not an executive but he is a big name scientific figure. And I had been working with Fred to learn about genetics. He was a major mentor, a big force in my life. And when we asked him to do this, he said, okay, I'll do it, but I need some time. And he wanted like six weeks. And I thought, man, this is kind of him hawing around. Let's just get this done. But he took that six weeks and he read what must've been thousands of Reddit AMAs. And he studied it and he learned what the vernacular was and he learned how to how to do things in shorthand and he watched what went well. And then he had us do he had me bring together a group of young scientists from throughout Monsanto to do a chat that we were going to treat like this AMA. And so we practiced it once. And then and I thought the whole time, Fred, this is overkill. You know, this is just going to be a little message board thing. It's not going to be I, I thought it would be a big deal, but I didn't think it was going to be like this. Well, the night before he went on. 
the science thread put up a post saying, we're going to have somebody from Monsanto on here. This is the first time somebody from a Fortune 500 company has ever come on here. Be nice to them. And it essentially got the highest upvotes of anything that had ever gone on the science thread. So then the next day when we did that Reddit AMA, it exploded. And we did some calculations and we talked to the people at Reddit about like how big was it there. And we figured out that the number of people multiplied by the amount of time they spent on that science Reddit AMA was actually more time than when we bought a Super Bowl ad. We had bought a 30-second Super Bowl ad that same year. And so this one Reddit AMA actually had more people's attention for longer than this thing we spent millions of dollars on. And once me and my team and Fred did that, then Monsanto was like, okay, you can do what you want. Go out there and try other experiments. Well, you mentioned Fred Perlack and, you know, Dr. Perlack is, you know, somebody who I've uh, respected for forever. Really, it's so cool that you were able to work with him. What were some of the other things that you saw him change and, and Rob Fraley too, for that matter? What were some things that they changed in the way that they approached the public as very visible agents of that company? One of the things that Fred did that you could only see if you watched him interact with people is that he would listen to what somebody was saying and he would always take in this big, long breath. And I, I remember one time telling him like, Fred, you look like you're about to disagree with them or something like, why, why do you do that? And he's like, well, I'm thinking. And I realized that Fred did not have the urge that maybe a young person like me had, which was, I heard your answer and I want to, I want to knock that ping pong ball back as fast as I can so that that way, you know, that I know exactly what I'm talking about. But Fred had a much more patient, much more drawn out way of interacting with people. So he would take his time as he thought about his answer and then he'd start talking and he wasn't trying to speak loudly. He wasn't trying to be more clever than anybody else. And you start to see this happen and you watch, even if I gave the exact same answer that he did, the fact that he was demonstrating to the person that he was talking to, that he was being thoughtful, that he was being measured that he wasn't trying to force an idea down other people's throats, that you watched him change the demeanor of an entire room of people. And I saw it happen many, many times. And it, and it really helped me learn, it's not the fastest, flashiest. It's the person that shows the other side. They're willing to listen. They're willing to be humble. Even though Fred knew so much more than almost everyone else he encountered when we were doing these communications things, he never treated them like that. He took every single question seriously, calmly, and slowly. Now you ultimately left the company, uh, but was it because of something that was, you know, that you came across something nefarious or something with the company that you just, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you know, like all of a sudden you opened the broom closet and found the skeletons, right? You know, w w was there, was there something that really triggered that or was it just more of a personal shift? So I had done this job for about five years and I, I was there far, far longer than I had ever imagined that I would be there. But about four years in, I had developed a relationship with the president of the American Farm Bureau, a guy named Zippy Duval. And Zippy and I uh, would talk about how can we push the envelope? How can we get farmers to communicate with people? And Zippy came to me one day and he said, Vance, I did not become president of the Farm Bureau because I need a bigger job. Like my farm is fine. Everything is settled. I'm here because I want to make a difference. And I, I was wondering, do you have any ideas on what we could do to this 
conference that we're going to have. The American Farm Bureau has an annual conference every year. It's a huge deal. You've been there. And I said, well, you know, if you want to do something edgy, I could probably come up with a couple of ideas. And I said, yeah, go ahead. And so I decided that I was going to bring somebody in that would answer a question that I saw farmers all over the United States struggling with, which is I would go to these conferences much smaller than the annual Farm Bureau conference. And farmers would say to me, my biggest challenge with sending my daughter or my son off to school is if they go to school and they stay, if they are either one of two things happen, they either stay on the ag campus because every time they go over to the history department or the science department or the sociology department, people are telling them that the way they do farming is bad and evil and their culture is all wrong. So they regress and they go back to the ag college. So they don't have this big, broad experience. Or if they don't complain about that, they say, I sent my daughter or son to school and they came back indoctrinated. So they hate the farm and they hate what we're doing and they question everything. What should I do? Should I quit sending my kids to school? And I didn't have a good answer for that, but I had heard Dr. Peterson, uh, who's a clinical psychologist out of the University of Toronto, talk about some of these issues. And I thought, you know, this would probably be a good conversation to bring to the farmers, to expose them to somebody that helps people learn how to deal with problems that they have, how to make their kids more resilient. And I went to do this and about, I don't know, a couple of weeks before it came out, I posted something on LinkedIn and there were a group of people that were pro-biotech, but very much of the political mindset that Jordan Peterson was leading people down the wrong path and that, that he was somehow uh, dark and evil. So a group of people decided they were going to make an active protest of this. And it went from this being an exciting thing that we were bringing the Farm Bureau to uh, being accused of bringing a, a right-wing Nazi sympathizer to the American Farm Bureau and that Monsanto was sponsoring a fireside chat with him. So suddenly, overnight, I went from having built lots of good relationships where people were willing to let me push the envelope to potentially I had pushed it too far. And the event itself went off great. Like there were some people that liked it, some people that didn't, but he had a huge line of people to talk with him. It was, it was, a, it was a very successful thing. But what happens inside of a corporation when you take a big chance and it causes reputational damage is that people are much, much more cautious about what they're going to let you do. And we were in the middle of being purchased by Bear. So after that happened, the company was still very supportive of me, but they were much more reluctant to let me push on the, on the walls. And by this point in my career, I had basically come to the conclusion if we do not solve the problem of people being afraid of where their food comes from and having the stories and rumors that start off in the countryside and seep into the city, if we don't stop that, who knows what that will do to our society? How that may be one of the most dangerous things to happen. And so as my freedom started becoming more limited, I started getting a little stir crazy. Bear, when they took over, welcomed me with open arms. They were great. They were really solid to me. And they were like, we loved what you did over here. And we'd like to see you keep advancing in the company. So here's, you can either go up the executive check through supply chain or finance. Which one do you want? <laughs> and I said, I don't want either of those things. I didn't come here to do, to become an executive at a fortune 500 company. I came here because this was the most important problem I can solve. And communications around these types of issues are what I was born to do. And so after about six months of them uh, having taken over Monsanto, 
we parted ways very amicably. Everything was great. And I started my own company. It's really funny because we've spoken, you know, a billion times and I never really realized that your story with, with that event is very parallel to what's happening to me too. And a lot of the same players involved for what it's worth. Um, you know, my university doesn't want any visibility, the FOIA requests, the hassles, the online constant smear. They would rather just, you know, have you sit down in the background and do your job and, you know, don't, don't go outside your box. And, and so, you know, I'm kind of at that same watershed, you know, trying to think of, do I really want to check the boxes and have a paycheck and a, and a good job in academia or do I really want to just commit myself to solving the real problem that I care about the most? And that's what I do here on the podcast. And I get so I get the little taste of that. But I never really realized that after all the time we've spoken together that it, it's horribly, horribly parallel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this happens with anyone that is going to do something that shakes up the established order. You're going to run into this problem. And if what you want to do is be at the top of an established order you're not going to make those choices and that's okay. Not, not everybody should. We need to have institutions. We need to have them be solid so that that way when a crisis comes, they're able to stand strong. However, the entire world can't operate that way because we have to have people that are willing to challenge orthodoxy. We have to have people that are willing to say, I know that's the way we've always done it, but things need to move and we need to change. And so the world needs both sides. And I would say, if you're sitting there looking at your life and saying, I hate the work that I'm doing, you may want to ask yourself, am I the type of person that's maybe more heterodox and would benefit from being in a place where I can challenge the status quo and it's rewarded as opposed to punished? Well, looking back on the whole scenario with the company, do you think that you have would have had more opportunities if you would have stayed with Bayer or pretty much uh, that's a closed chapter and you've moved on? Gosh, I've not thought of it that way. I mean, I, I I would right now, you know, still be getting a regular paycheck and it wouldn't be dependent on my ability to uh, find new ways to, to interact with my clients and do different types of speaking engagements. But at its core, no, I, I don't ever question it at all. I got to spend the last 53 days or, uh, interviewing people from all over the world, asking them any question I want, using whatever language I want with no concern that I was going to get a call from my boss that said, hey, you're not allowed to say that or we don't want to publish that or let's not go talk to that person. So what I've given up in financial security, I have increased in my life being something that is full and colorful and vibrant and exciting. And I am in the rare position that I don't need a group of people. I don't I don't need to pool the resources so that we can have grow room space or that we can you know buy the solutions that we need or build the robots. My work is very much individual. So for people that are in those positions where they need to be working in large teams, they don't get to make that option. So if somebody like me can make those options, I, I probably ought to for the for the good of all of us. No, really good. So we'll talk about some of the things that you're doing now in the second half of the podcast. So we're speaking with Vance Crow. He's an expert in strategic communication, particularly in the areas of agriculture, but certainly applicable across many disciplines and also has an outstanding podcast that you should check out. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Since its beginning, almost five years ago, this podcast has served to target misinformation about science while inspiring applications of new technologies. The current COVID-19 crisis was a shock and woke a wave of instant experts that can armchair quarterback a solution for you that defies the guidance of actual authority. Now, I don't know about yours, but my Facebook thread is a steaming stream of conspiracy and miracle cures. I thought this pandemic would bring us closer to science, when actually it stirred the desire to shun those that actually know best. What do those eggheads know anyway? We can think of it as pandemic dunning Kruger, a pandemic, if you will. The people that understand viruses, vaccines, and epidemiology the least are the most confident in their errant positions. They also seem to dominate the communication space. So it's up to you not only to learn as much as you can about the situation, but then immerse yourself into the discussion. Use social media to share good stories, quality podcasts, and solid science. Engage the pseudo-experts in their false bravado. Remind everyone that this is a time of uncertainty and it's best navigated by scientists at the helm. Not preachers, television pundits, militia dudes, your aunt, or even political leadership. Turn them all off and listen to credible experts that have dedicated their lives to public health. Identify and share good media. That's our role. To give you something to share as you engage those that believe they know the answers when actually nobody does. And good scientists admit that. The best way to find answers faster is to rely on the skilled and steady hand of scientific expertise. And that's what we'll continue to bring you here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Vance Crow, And Vance is well-recognized for his podcast as well as his efforts in strategic communication, uh, formerly the Director of Millennial Engagement at the Monsanto Company. So as we turn away from the Monsanto time and the time over there with Bayer Monsanto, uh, you've been really out on the public speaking circuit mostly dealing with agricultural audiences. And so what are the major topics that you are discussing? So I, I talk about cultural ideas, and oftentimes I get to serve as a sort of ambassador that goes between what do people in the city or what do people in the sciences think, and how should people living in the rural parts of the world understand what's going on around them? Because so much of our culture is... Um, is seen in the regular mainstream news through television and through radio. And if you're sitting out in the countryside, you see things going on in social media. It makes no sense to you at all. And then if, if people are pushing you as a farmer to get out there and tell your story or communicate with other people about why you do what you do, you get out there and it's like trying to, um, I don't know, build a house on a freeway, right? There's things flying past you so fast. You don't even know what to do. So a lot of my work is around showing people where they can find openings, who are interesting people that they could connect to in their network, that if you watch and interact with these people, you'll start to learn these skills that you need in order to work on that crazy freeway. 
Or another big thing that I talk about is more of a philosophical mindset. So uh, you and I have talked about the Overton window many, many times, which is the window of acceptable ideas in a given society. And every once in a while, because of changes to that society, what can could be what was once considered radical or even an unthinkable idea can now enter into that window of acceptable ideas. And coronavirus is a perfect example of that. If you had told somebody back in January that we are going to require all citizens or almost all citizens to be locked in their houses for two months, people would have thought that's a completely unthinkable idea. There's no scenario under which that would be possible. Well, lo and behold, two months later, that's what was going on. So I often try and help farmers identify where are the Overton windows breaking open that you can start to get new ideas in, or where are those ideas that you want to make sure you push out? How do you find them and what's the best way to keep them out? It seems like farmers kind of want to keep a hold on the limits of that Overton window. <laughs> I mean, and maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but it seems like agriculture and uh, the folks involved tend to be a little more entrenched in in their ideas. And, you know, that's the, that's the way most of them are wired. That's the way the industries have been wired. And do you find that that's true or is it, what's the biggest communications fail with respect to agriculture? That's a good question. You know, I see it as um, Stuart Brand, who runs The Long Now, has this concept called pace layering. And pace layering is basically saying different aspects of the world around us move at different speeds. And the closer you are to the core, the slower things move. So he talks about, you know, nature and culture are the first two circles, and they move very, very slowly. They change very infrequently. Then on top of that, you have governance, which changes a little bit faster than culture. And then you have infrastructure, which still moves faster, and then commerce. And then finally, fashion. And fashion moves wildly around that circle. And it, and it you know spins and turns and does all these crazy things. I think that if you want to be a person that derives your financial security from the land, you have to be way down on that pace layering. You don't want to change too quickly because you know what works and you know that if you get outside of the bound of what works, everything gets destroyed. And so I think there's a natural kind of tendency for farmers to say, let's be very careful about how quickly we adapt because any one mistake may knock out my one of my 40 plantings that I'm going to get to do in my lifetime. And so I've never seen it as a struggle to get them to be open to new ideas. Uh, in many ways, I think that um, the young people in farming uh, are the ones that are the most open to new ideas of almost anybody I've been around because they know, hey, if we don't change, then I'm not going to be competitive. I'm not going to be able to keep up with the larger global market. So I think maybe sometimes our feeling is that they don't change very much, but my experience is it is a rapid, evolving, quickly changing group of people. Well, back to, you know, you and and your presence, you know, over the years before, you know, when you were with Monsanto, you took a lot of heat online from the anti-GMO folks. <laughs> you took a lot of heat from the folks in SCICOM, um, the select members of the science communication community. And here, here you are with uh, this kind of um, negative information disparaging information still alive online in a Google search. And so do you find that you're kind of dragging, dragging an anchor that this kind of negative stuff has affected your current ability to 
find work or push a message? Yeah, I may regret saying this, but no, not at all. Like uh, the the people that were trying to harm me um, or my reputation, I don't know if they didn't succeed or maybe there's a whole bunch of stuff I just didn't know anything at all about. But I would say for the most part, um, you know, when Slate was writing really negative articles about me, it made me a lot cooler among a lot of people that I really respect, right? Like one of the things that I think is probably hard for the science community to hear is, uh, I'm a little nervous to say this, but I think it's probably true, is that there are a lot of people that view science communication as instead of being psychom, it's psychomy, right? They they think that the people are using science to lead our way down the path of socialism or or communism. And so when you get attacked by the psychomies, that that doesn't hurt their feelings. It actually makes you stronger in some way. Now, I think that's probably unfair. I think there are a lot of people that um, they're trying to do good and they're trying to explain science and they mix what is true with what ought to be true. But I think that the people that were trying to do harm um, probably did the opposite. They probably did more to help my career than almost anybody else. Can I say that? Re- is that? Is that a bad? Is that a bad? No, idea? I, <laughs> no, I think you're okay. I think you're on, and I think you really help again illuminate my situation a little bit too. Uh, you know, as usual, I'm learning something from you just from the conversation because it really does show the bifurcation in science communication. There are people whose job it is to communicate the science, but then there's people who have an agenda that is either uh, pushing a given issue not just, you know, explaining, you know, what it is and what it isn't. And then also a lot of uh, takedowns, you know, a lot of the kill the messenger who may have the same message, but you just don't like the messenger. And and there's a lot of that happening. And I think it's really strange. A friend of mine pointed out that we, we live in a society that is a meritocracy. It is, if you can show up and get work done and, and deliver a product, people are going to respect that and you're going to move up in the world. But social media doesn't actually work that way. Social media is more about an honor culture. And what you have are there's no way to produce a product. There's no way to win other than for you to get lots of likes and retweets and for you to get your competitors or people that think things different than you completely thrown out that that we're in an honor culture. And if you've lost honor, the only thing there is is shame and there's no bottom to that shame pit that we can throw people in. And I think that this has some weird implications in the science community, because in the science community, it is a meritocracy, but it's a meritocracy built within a very weird uh, hierarchy of, of, uh, of who is the top of the department, who has prestige, who has the ability to appoint people to committees or make money move from one place to another. And I think that's one of those things that people in the science communities that I'm hearing in in regular world don't shine a light on that very much, that that it isn't just a meritocracy. There's also this weird shame culture, and that causes really weird and I think damaging things to go on on things like Twitter, where there's the science community says, if you don't agree with the orthodoxy, we are going to destroy you. And I agree with that. The sad part about that is, is that destruction via social media is permanent. And there are people who maybe retract papers or make mistakes in their career, or whatever they do, and they go to fight another day as a scientist. But when they when the takedown involves social media or electronic media or, or even just the regular media, 
that never goes away. And when reputation is what you have and what you, you know, build your career on the foundation of your career and your, your, your credibility, these kinds of things are extremely dangerous because they take good scientists who are maybe doing decent work inside their field. And just by virtue of someone disagreeing can really vilify somebody and, and cause them to lose the ability to share a very important message. I don't know how we solve this because I completely agree with you. I think that your point is well made and I've watched it happen to you and your reputation and the, and, and things did get taken from you because you didn't get to go become a private citizen uh, or you didn't choose to become a private citizen. You choose to keep, keep doing your work and being a teacher, which you can really only do within that university system. I, I think there's gotta be some sort of a price that people should have to pay for being like call out culture, right? Like, Maybe you're allowed to do some calling out, but why is there not like some marks on uh, I've reported this many people as having done something threatening or rude, right? So that that way everybody can see that this person right here, they are often hitting that red alarm button. And maybe if you see that they're hitting that red alarm button two, three, five, ten, a hundred times a day, maybe they're not adding to the discourse. Maybe that should be calculated into uh, the way we think about what, what they're saying or putting forward. I wish that was the case because, you know, what some of the worst things that have ever happened to me as a teacher is um, hearing from uh, another student in the class that two students were pulling up websites about me and laughing about it during my lecture. And you, it's stuff from like 2015, you know, or things people said or images on Google images, and you can never outrun that stuff. And so all you have to do or all you can do, and it's what you're doing, is continually produce good media and just overwhelm it. And I guess I'm doing that, too, with the podcast like here. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's outrunning it, right? Like it, it's not easy and it's not fun, but you have continued to to get people to invite you all over the world to speak. You've continued to be able to put stuff out as long as you don't let them take you down all the way, then then keep and moving forward. And I think like. I mean, hell, Kevin, to watch what you went through made what I went through look very easy. So whether or not this is helpful to you, it was extremely helpful to me to watch somebody else have their life be drug out into the public, have things that that shouldn't have been out in the public out there. It made me say, all right, what are the choices I should make? How can I still say what I think and what I believe and try and avoid the pitfalls of having your life uh, drug out in front of the public? Yeah, and, and, and I think that maybe cultures in times are a little different now than they were back in 2012, 2015. Um, maybe things have calmed down a little bit. I don't know. Maybe not. I just but don't in, think, I think right now the reason Twitter is, I, I love Twitter right now. The last two months of Twitter has been the best two months of Twitter I've ever seen. But I think that's because we've stopped doing a lot of this postmodernist, you know, uh, we're going to, we're going to do the most absurd uh, things and see what we can get away with and say and get people to agree with. People are now saying, hey, I got priorities. I got my business to run. I've got to keep money coming in. I've got to survive this disease that we're very afraid of. So I think a lot of that postmodernist stuff has been shoved way down. Hopefully it stays down. I agree. <laughs> well, well, tell me about your podcast and why you started it and uh, some of the, and just give me a flavor of some of the current emphasis. 
I started my podcast about a year ago, and that's because I knew there was going to be some lag time between when I left Bear and started my own company and when I would start doing talks. And I was like, look, the way that you give a valuable talk is that you are testing your ideas. You're challenging things. You're having conversations just like we are right here, where I say something and then you reply, and it makes me think about it in some different way. And I was really afraid that if I was sitting at my house waiting for these speeches, that my knife would get dull and uh, and that I wouldn't have new ideas. I wouldn't have interesting and important things to say. And so I started doing a weekly podcast where I would find experts in any domain. It could be a jujitsu expert. It could be a physicist. Um, and I would just sit down and talk with them about like, what did you learn in order to develop this expertise? And I've had everybody from uh, Doug Sammons, one of the great biotech scientists of our time, to Jackie Joyner-Kersey. But then when coronavirus hit and all of my speaking stopped, I was like, hey, I've got way more time on my hands. So why don't I try and catalog what everybody's different perspective of coronavirus is? And the reason that started was because I had watched a mob kind of form in St. Louis when they thought this one guy was responsible for exposing hundreds of people to coronavirus. And people were ready to go to his house and burn it down, as far as I could tell online. And so I made a post about being careful about the mob. And it made me realize the only reason mobs form is because they are not trying to understand the perspective of the of the person that they're they're uh, rising up against. And so the the way that I could create value would be for me to say I don't have a particular point of view about coronavirus. I am going to try and learn as much as I can by talking with everybody from epidemiologists to geneticists to the out of work bartender to I just interviewed a comedian and a member of the House of Lords just to try and figure out what are all the ways that we can look at what this disease is, how we are responding to it, and maybe how we should change society once we come out of on the other side of this uh, catastrophe. Well, I'll just tell you, I've really enjoyed the podcast and I've been doing a lot of work in the lab and a lot of work uh, at home and uh, the whole time have uh, headphones on and I'm plugged in and they've been fascinating interviews and I've really enjoyed them a lot. And I don't think it's just because I know you and, you know, I, I know the, the the beats, but I really enjoyed them. But if you had to give people direction, like to check it out, here's one that you should listen to, or maybe a couple that you should listen to, where would people start in the series? Well, Kevin, I've been listening to your podcast for years and I, I uh, like Gregor Larson is one of the most impactful podcasts I have ever listened to when he talked about the domestication of wolves to dogs. I still remember exactly where I was when I heard that podcast. So to hear you say that you're listening to my podcast, as long as we've been friends and as close as we are, it means a lot to me that you would say that. I think the podcast, if I were going to recommend for your listeners that you blow your hair back a little bit, is an interview with a guy named Kevin McKernan. Kevin is, uh, he worked on the Human Genome Project at MIT, and then he later decided that there was too much interference of government in his science. And so he decided he was going to try and do pharmaceutical grade science um, in an unregulated area, which happened to be cannabis. And so he talks all about like what conclusions he's come to as he's moved from academia into the private realm. And then he starts talking about how that gives him a different vantage point through which to view coronavirus. And I don't know whether he's right or totally wrong, but I can tell you that his way of thinking about the problem and, and talking about it 
was something that you never see in regular mainstream media. So if you've got a science mind and you want to have it challenged, go check out the podcast with Kevin McKernan because it'll blow your hair back. If you want something that's just fun, I'm going to publish a, a conversation with a comedian named Liz Miley. And she's a New York comedian that just watched all of her work dry up. And how is she responding to this? So they're all over the map. You know what my favorite one was? No, what's that? Strange Donuts. Oh, yeah. He's good dude. Yeah, that's a guy that he, uh, when he came in and did my first interview that we ever did, we've done several together. His name's Jason Bachman. We're talking for like five minutes. And I just thought the guy sitting in my office, this is before coronavirus, was just like a guy that sold donuts and lifted heavy weights. So I just was kind of like, all right, I'll, I'll interview this guy. He's kind of a nice guy. But then I, he, he started talking about how he has almost no employee turnover. And I'm like, what do you mean you have, you have such low employee turnover? And he's like, well, I think I understand people. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, because I used to get in trouble when I was a kid. And I'm like, what do you mean get in trouble? You got caught smoking behind the school or what? And he's like, no, when I was 14 years old, I was an enforcer at a crack house. <laughs> and you're like, wait, wait, what? And he goes yeah. in to talk about like, yeah, this is what I learned by facing, you know, some of these worst, terrible problems by, by being involved in the crack trade. And that's what I think about your podcast and mine doing this is if you sit down and ask someone, tell me how you came to the conclusions that you came to, it is so much more interesting than trying to win them over to your side of the argument. It, like you cannot believe what people will tell you. Well, you can, Kevin, because you're doing it too. You just, it's, it's shocking to see what people will say when you just ask and you stick around and wait for their answer. No, very true. Are, are you applying this in other areas of media? Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I have over the last few months developed a much lower ego about my Twitter. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is if I put something out into the world today, I put out a video that said, I disagree with mandatory masks and I put it out there. And then I asked for people, if you disagree, tell me why. And, uh, and so I got a bunch of people that disagreed with me because they think man masks should be mandatory. But the interesting thing was anytime somebody pushed back on me, not with a shout or some kind of negative thing to say, but they said, no, this is another way of looking at it. If I asked them to tell me more about it, they would write probably for 15, 20, 30 minutes. So they're thinking about what we're talking about. They're putting their energy, their perspective in it. And who knows whether or not they take on my point of view or I take on theirs. But certainly everyone has thought about this much more deeply than they would have if they had staked out a position and then been like, uh, I'm going to force you to believe what I believe, as opposed to saying, okay, if you disagree, the most interesting thing I can do is ask you, why do you disagree? Right. And because if you can at least understand where someone's coming from, rather than, you know, what is normally just the, I'm taking my tennis ball and going home, you know, approach that most people always have. I mean, I know I disagree with you on this on this particular issue, but I understand where you're coming from. And, uh, you know, and that's the funny part is that there are people who live in the middle of nowhere who uh, where there are no cases of this thing. And having restrictions does have profound impacts on their lives. And maybe we do need to have a little more nuance. And, and so I've come off a little bit on my hard stance on this. But how is this whole COVID thing and, and your coverage of it? How has it really changed your approach in the way that you will eventually teach strategic communication to other people? That's a great question, Kevin. I, I came into coronavirus uh, having one point of view 
And then I think just like everybody else, the more that I learned, my opinion would change. And then it would change again. And then it would change again. And then it would change again. And this happened up and down and all over the place. And I think for a lot of people, you get into the mentality that what you're supposed to do is have the right answer and then hold on to it for dear life. And what I've come to the conclusion of is it's best to have a strong opinion that you can believe in and that you, but it's loosely held. And the more that you are comfortable being loosely holding your opinions about what ought to happen, the more that you're going to discover new ways of looking at something. And the new ways of, of helping you look at something may not change your mind, but it may help you figure out the next time I go to explain my point of view, I need to make sure that I address this thing that I hadn't been thinking of before. And just by focusing on that, it softens you and it helps you come to a way of presenting your ideas so that other people are far more likely to listen. And even if they don't agree, they're willing to absorb it and interact with it as opposed to this is the way to go. And I demand that you follow the evidence because I followed the evidence. No, you're exactly right. Because all of this is all about trust and building rapport between people. And if you're going to create durable change, you have to have that trust. And you never build trust with somebody by imposing your ideas. You build trust with people by showing that you have shared ground and that you have similar motivations and that there is a, that it builds a level of intimacy that isn't there just when you're banging the table and saying, do it my way. And I think we've, I know I have come a long way in applying those kinds of ideas in strategic communication and uh, really get more and more excited about doing that more going forward rather than less. So I'm really glad we had the conversation here today. I think one of the questions that I have for you, Kevin, is as you come out of coronavirus and you're re-entering the world, what are behavior changes that you're you're going to do? Let's say the virus is gone, vaccine comes, everybody's safe from it. What what behaviors will you have different than you have right now? Um, you know, that's a really good question. I probably would be a little bit more vigilant about washing hands because I always was anyway, but I kind of like it more. <laughs> Um, but other behaviors, you know, being more mindful of things like when I cough or sneeze in public, being really careful about how to cover up, how to protect that, um, not touching stuff after I, you know, uh, sneeze or cough. And, and it, maybe that's kind of a change. I never used a drop of Purell in my life prior to this and was always a firm believer that it's good to challenge our immunity and, you know, let's be a little fast and loose with the, with the bugs. But when you realize that some of these things can have profound health consequences for others, I think those are some of the changes that I would be likely to adopt. That's a great answer. Yeah. Well, Vance Crow, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. I've wanted to have you on for a long time. I wanted to have you on the Vern Blathek Science Power Hour. <laughs> oh, I remember. That got <laughs> shut down. Yeah, yeah it, had to, it had to probably for good. But thank you very much for joining me and best wishes to you going forward. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. And of course, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast going on our fifth, no, going into our sixth year. That's five complete years in the box going to be about 250 episodes, 1.3 million downloads. So thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you for your reviews. Thank you for your support on Patreon. Uh, it helps us boost the visibility of this podcast. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. The-
Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.